Has anyone reminded you that this year has been unprecedented recently? Hardly a fortnight seems to go by without some stone being thrown into the 2020 pond causing ripples. And few have felt it more than the students who are taking their exam in 2021. In addition to a fairly significant disruption to schooling and probable isolation and remote learning, there have been regular questions over whether exams will take place. While the government is determined that they will, we've seen their cancellation in Scotland and Wales. Add to this the moving goalposts of exam content, and you can only imagine that an already tricky time for our teams might feel like it's starting to spiral out of control. So just how can we help rally them to find or retain their mojo and continue to prepare as best they can for exams? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, they could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health. They could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at motivation and what it means to have a winning mindset. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Professor Damien Hughes. Damien is an international speaker and best-selling author who combines his practical and academic background within sport, organisational developments and change psychology to help organisations and teams to create a high-performing culture. Amongst his eight best-selling books, we've got The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset and How to Change Absolutely Anything. Damien is also the co-host of a hugely popular, entertaining and informative high-performance podcast. Now, that's definitely worth checking out. Damien, thank you very much for joining me today. There's a lot of uncertainty around for our students. And where there's not uncertainty, there certainly seems to be adversity and setbacks. All of our students over the course of the last week have been experiencing dips in their motivation. And while I guess that's not unusual to one extent or another in any given exam year, what is quite unusual is that parents are similarly feeling at a loss for what to do. After all, they don't have the answers to what's going to happen next. Damien, is it possible to find a motivation to succeed when you're not entirely sure what success actually looks like? Oh, that's a brilliant question. I think if we start and go to the term motivation, what does motivation actually mean? And if you look at the etymology of it, it means what moves you from A to B in many ways. So we need to have a sense of a destination of where we're going to. But I often think there's three types of motivation, Nathan, that is worth just touching on. The first type of motivation is we do things through desperation. And that's often where we're running away from something and there's a sense of panic to it. The second well of motivation is we do things through rationalization because we realize that we should do it. And then the third type of motivation that we can draw on is inspiration, where we're doing it because we really want to. Now, all of them are valid forms of motivation, but I think that inspiration will take us a lot further just because 
because it's driven by passion, it's driven by choice, and it's driven by desire, which, if you harness it correctly, can be almost like rocket fuel. So I think there's a certain element of being able to tap into, well, where do I want to get to? What is my inspiration? What's my bigger picture, my dream? And I think we need to almost zoom out a little bit and look at where do you want to get to in the next 10 years as opposed to the next 12 months and have this idea that whatever we're doing, does it contribute towards moving us towards that bigger picture? A nice exercise for any parents that is maybe worth doing is, I sometimes do this with children where, where I'll say to them, what do you want to do in your life? And they go, I don't know. And you say, well, what do you want to have in your life? What do you want to be? And that's a bit more easier because it's tangible. So some kids might be driven by the idea of I want to live in a big house or I want to drive a certain type of car or something like that. And if you go, well, that's where your, in- your interest is, let's go there. And then the next stage is, well, let's work with the end in mind and say, right, so go and inv- explore how much money today would you need to be able to afford a house like that? And then they get an idea of what it costs. And then you say, so what kind of job do you think you would need that would pay you an income that would afford you that kind of household lifestyle? And then they start to narrow it down and start to recognise that this maybe might be a partner in a law firm, it might be an elite athlete or something like that. And then you say to them, right, so is what you're doing today contributing to getting you to there? And if it's not, what can you do that moves you a step closer to it? And the idea of using that with the end in mind is it taps into the idea of inspiration rather than desperation or rationalisation doing it and going through the motions. So... That's one potential way of getting people to be able to perform when the end goal of maybe the government moving exams and things like that is is so nebulous at the moment, but it's also it's completely outside of our control. So if we can start to go a bit further out and look at elements that do sit within our control and our realm of influence, I think that gives us a really powerful first step in motivation. It's really interesting because I think that actually what's happened in the past typically for students unless they're driven by this goal I want to be a as you say a partner in a law firm or or have something specific is that they tend to be driven to not fail. So I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to do really badly or I just need to scrape by which I guess is that that sort of desperation motivation that you were that you were talking about. Yeah, definitely. So desperation motivation is the idea of running away from something, running away from a fear of failure. And whilst that can be valid as a short-term driver, it also narrows your options. You become overcome. Your ability to retain perspective, to be able to think calmly, becomes severely diminished when you're operating from a sense of desperation. So, yeah, getting people away from this idea of you're not playing not to lose, but instead start playing to win. When you go out onto the field, don't play not to lose, but go in with a clear sense of how you're going to impose yourself and show up. I absolutely love that, not playing not to lose. Because you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't. You don't tend to in anything else in life go in with the expectation of, well, so long as I don't just lose. Certainly when you're in control of, of what's going on around you. So I think there's a, I think there's a really powerful image. Yeah, I think like a, a really nice metaphor that sort of illustrates that, Nathan, is you say to somebody, take a plank of wood, a normal piece of four by four, two before, sorry, and you put it, say, three brick, three bricks high from the floor. And you say to somebody, do you think you're capable of walking across that? And most people with a decent sense of balance will go, yeah, it's easy. So, you, so that's an easy image to convey. And then you say, right, if we were to take that same plank of wood and now put it 30 foot high in the air, 
with no safety net beneath you, would you still walk across it with the same ease and nonchalance? And most people, if they're being sensible, would probably go, well, probably not. I'd probably be a bit more hesitant. I'd probably sit down, I'd inch my way along it, something like that. You say, why? It's the same plank of wood. And the answer is, well, what happens if I fall? What happens if I slipped and fell? I'd break my neck, I'd kill myself. So the only thing that has changed in those two scenarios, apart from the height, is where you as an individual are focusing. So suddenly when you're 30 foot high, you're thinking about the consequences of falling. Whereas when it's three foot high, you're thinking about actually just doing your job and walking across it and, <laughs> and doing it to the best of your ability. And I think when we sort of remove the consequences from the conversation and not make it so dominant of we can't fail, you need these, you have to pass these exams and listen to the language that we use. It's all the equivalent of raising that plank of wood higher and higher and higher. So people's ability to focus becomes so narrow that that sense of perspective, the ability to be calm and rational becomes severely impaired. Whereas, as you say, if you're looking at a goal that's a little bit further out, actually, there are many ways in which you can get to that goal, typically. And so, actually, if you know that your next step, the grade that you're after in exams, is contributing, but you don't quite get there, actually, there's likely to be another way in which you can get around it and still work towards your inspired motivator, I presume. Absolutely, yeah. So I think there's, again, this might be helpful for anyone listening, but there's three types of goals that you set for yourself. And and you need to do all three of them if they're going to work effectively. Because what you're describing when you're talking about people feeling despondent or getting down or feeling demotivated at any stages, every target you go for, whether this is preparing for an exam, whether it's... Uh, a project in a workplace, whether it's an exercise regime. Every project experiences a concept known in psychology as Cantor's Law. And the law is named after a Harvard psychologist called Ross Cantor. And Cantor's Law says when you get to the middle of any project, it will always look and feel like a failure because you'll get too far in to go back, but you're not far enough to get to the end. And at that moment, that's where people get despondent, they decide that, it's never going to happen. They start convincing themselves that they're wasting the time. So you're always going to hit this lull in the middle of any project. So if we can sort of use these three different types of goal setting, it gives us a fighting chance of getting through that lull in the middle. So the first type of goal setting is what we described earlier. I didn't use the term, but it's an outcome goal. It's an outcome of what do you want? And just describe it in really emotive language, whether it's you're asking kids, what do you want to have in your life? It's the house they want, the car they want to drive, the holidays they want to go on, the experiences they want. That's the outcome stuff that just motivates you. It gives you a desire that's tied to your emotions. The second type of goal that goes beneath that is a performance goal. And a performance goal is something that should be able to be measured. So... It might be something that if you say a performance goal is I want to get an A in that GCSE, I can turn up on whatever date in August the results come out and I can have a look at your results and see whether you achieved it or not. So that is the performance that would take you a step closer to the outcome. But what underpins that is the process goal. And the process goal is tell me what foot you're going to put in front of the other. Tell me the small steps that you're going to take that if you just focus on doing, putting one foot in front of the other, by definition, that will take you as close to your performance as you're capable of, and by definition, achieves the outcome that you've desired. So when you hit cancer's law, and everybody will, 
that's where your ability to go into process mode and say, you know what, just for today, put one foot in front of the other, just do the next thing, then the next thing. And your ability to keep doing the next thing on that path creates a consistency and a consistency will naturally get you out of that lull and create its own momentum, which keeps you on track. And how do you go about, or how important is it that the performance goals you talk about are realistic and achievable? Yeah, they have to be. So the outcome stuff, that's where you dream. The performance stuff, you need to speak to somebody and get advice from somebody within that world that can that can sometimes stop you becoming delusional. Again, there's a concept that's worth just, I'll share the concept if anyone wants to go and research. It's a concept called the Dunning-Kruger law. The Dunning-Kruger law says, if you're stupid, you're too stupid to know just how stupid you are. But by definition, if you're smart, you're smart enough to know how smart you are. So the easy way of illustrating it is, if you ever watch programs like X Factor or Britain's Got Talent, the bit that most people enjoy at the early stages when people turn up and say, oh, I'm going to sing like Mariah Carey and then sound like a cat being strangled. That's the Dunning-Kruger law and that's what amuses us because they don't understand how good a singer Mariah Carey is to appreciate how far away from that standard they are. So that's where the delusion is something that can often inhibit us. But So we need to have people around us that are going to sort of give us a sense of possibility. But I also think, though, you don't want somebody that's just going to shoot your dreams down in flames. You also want somebody that's going to stretch you enough. So you need to listen to people's advice, but make sure that they're people that have got your best interests at heart, that understand your outcome of where you're trying to get to, and that can push you or stretch you so that to take you in the direction of your dreams. So getting the advice of the right people rather than just other people is really important when it comes to setting those performance goals. And you'd hope that as parents, we're in a good position to do that kind of thing, the the stretching, aspirational, but not deluded types of goals. And we, we might have done that when they were younger. Of course, you can be an astronaut or unicorn or whatever else it is that the children want to. And I think there is, as we've had before, a danger that we might course correct too far as we get a bit older. But certainly it seems that there's a role for parents as experts in their children, together with teachers who are experts in, in what they're doing, to help set those performance goals that are, that are localised. So I don't, I'm not thinking about tempering the the sort of the, the 10 or 12 year goal that you were talking about the inspirational objective the outcome stuff but that sort of performance stuff in order to get to the next thing I'm on track for a six but actually I could get a seven if my process steps were were like this yeah and I think where the real value of a coach so I, I work in sort of elite sport and this is where I see the role of coaches coaches are are there to almost push you and stretch you from where you think you're capable of doing it. But they're also there then. Where the real value a parent can offer is at the process level of coaching you through the next step and the next step and keeping you on track from that. And then making sure that as you keep on track with the process, then that might start to move the performance target that you say, you know what, we're, we're ahead of schedule here. Maybe we need to go back and rethink what we're capable of. But the process stuff is where the work of coach adds real value. It's the idea of coaching you in the moment, being with you, almost like it's a catchphrase, a guide on the side. So just somebody that's there to to navigate you and help you navigate your way through the potholes that inevitably come. I think what I like about all of this is that actually all of this sounds like it's the intrinsic 
kind of stuff. It's, it's all within the student's control. And although we led with the idea that there's an awful lot happening in the world and with exams, actually the motivation can come from them if they're looking forward rather than thinking about what's happening either behind them or around them. Absolutely, Nathan. I think that's a really powerful point that in, in a world where there is such ambiguity at the moment, especially in this year, to focus on anything external and those external factors is going to cause stress and, and fatigue and all kinds of different levels of worry and concern because there's so much that we don't know. So whenever you can emphasise that phrase, it's a common phrase in sports psychology, which is control the controllables. Don't worry what the rest of the world is doing. Don't worry what the fans are shouting at you. Don't worry what the opposition are saying about you. When you come under pressure, you just need to know, what can I influence? And at the very heart of it, there's three things that any student listening to this can influence. What they think, how they talk about it, and how they choose to behave. And if that's where you put your energy and focus, and that's the conversation that, so you mentioned the High Performance podcast that I've been lucky enough to co-host over the last year or so with my friend and colleague, Jay Comfrey. We've interviewed a whole range of elite performers from the world of sport, art, business, music. And this is a common theme that all of them talk about. They focus resolutely on the things that are within their gift, that are in their immediate control. And they take absolute accountability for that. So they, there's a key phrase that often comes up in the conversation, fault versus responsibility. So we interviewed a young bloke called Billy Munger, who at 17 years old, he was a passionate Formula 4 motor racing driver. So his outcome goal, his dream was to get to Formula 1 and race in that. And at the age of 17, he was in a catastrophic crash. When he woke up five days later, he looked down and found that he'd had both his legs amputated. And one of the conversations we had with him was, how did you process it? He said, within a day of coming round from the coma, that I'd, the induced coma, I watched the footage again. And when I watched it to find out what mistakes I made, I realised that it wasn't my fault, but it was now my responsibility to do something about it. So whilst he was fixed on the outcome of wanting to be a Formula One driver, the process and the route he was going to take was going to have to be flexible. First of all, he was going to have to learn to walk on prosthetic legs. Then he was going to have to learn whether he could drive a car again. And at the moment, he's back on track to achieve his outcome but he's had to take a fairly elaborate detour to still get himself towards the outcome. And one of the big themes that Billy spoke about to us on it was fault versus responsibility. It might not have been my fault, but it's now my responsibility to make the best of this situation. And his attitude is infectious. You know, he's positive about it. He's not always happy. He's not always claiming that everything is great in his life, but he has this idea that tomorrow will be better. I'll learn from this and I'll get better. And it's constant looking at what he can do rather than bemoaning what others haven't done for him and things like that. So you're absolutely right. If you're a student listening to this, I'm giving you a very extreme example of Billy Munger's example, but this is a theme that's run all the way through it. There was another one, the most downloaded clip from the podcast series that we've done. Today, it's been listened to by over 6 million people. There's an interview that we did with the Dutch footballer, Robin Van Persie. The reason I think it's been the most downloaded clip was because he shared with us a conversation that every one of your listeners will be having with their children. Robin told us about a conversation he'd had with his 14-year-old son, Shaquille. His son is a 
is aspiring to be a professional footballer. So that's his outcome. That's his dream. He was playing in Rotterdam for his team and Robin recounted that they'd played in a game and his son hadn't played. And on the way home, his son was complaining about the coaches and not being picked for the team. And Robin said he pulled the car into a side road and he said to him, can I have a conversation with you? This is time at the age of 14. We need to have a conversation. And his son said, what do you want? And he said, you sound like a loser. He said, I'm your father and my job is to love you. And I love you. And that's not up for dispute. And I'll always love you. He said, and it's my job to get you to become a man that can cope with the world. And he said, but at the moment, you sound like a loser. He said, I hear you talking about the coach, the opposition, your teammates, the referee. He said, and at no stage in this conversation have we had a conversation about you and how you showed up and how you're behaving and how you're training. And he said, so your language is the language of a loser. And he said, then if you want to continue doing that, you're still assured of my love, but you better start to adjust your expectations that you're going to live the life of a loser. And you better start readjusting where you think you what the outcome goals you want. He said, oh, the alternative is you can start having a look at yourself. You can start taking accountability. You can start thinking about what you could do better because that's the language of a winner. And he said, but you're going to be guaranteed and assured of knowing and your mother's love, regardless of what, of the choice you make, but you need to be aware there's two routes. As I say, that clip has been downloaded. It's a two-minute conversation that we had with him, but six million people have listened to it because it goes back to the point you're making, Nathan. It taps into, it's controllable, that it's something that's intrinsic. We all have that influence over the kind of language that we use. And it's the kind of message that I think most of us think, I wish I'd have been given that reminder. Because as life gives you more and more experiences, you realise the inherent truth of what Robin Van Persie was sharing to his son. But And I think, as I say, in such ambiguous times, if we can emphasise, control the controllables, focus on your language, focus on your thought processes, focus on how you behave, that's the only thing that we really do have within our gift. Robin, really powerful stories. And certainly Billy's, as you say, being being quite an extreme, but also throws everything into absolute sharp relief and perspective, doesn't it? That here you've got this young man, remarkable, that actually what he's done is focus on what he can do in order to carry on achieving his goals, when the vast majority of us would look back and go, well, actually, that's just so unfair. Life's dealt me this thing and I'm a victim. I need people to do things for me rather than, as you say, actually pick himself up and find out what it is that he needs to do in order to meet his goal if he can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an important thing to emphasise here, Nathan, is that this isn't somebody born with the gift of optimism. This isn't somebody born with an ability to interpret these events. And it's it's something that you're either born with or you're not. These are all learned experiences. Now, in the case of Billy, he's been forced to learn those experiences in the most brutal way that you can imagine. But he's still gone and learned them. And that's part of the reason that, say, the podcast series that you're doing and the one that I'm involved in, we're really keen that it's a free resource. We're not charging people for it. So if people are listening to this going, oh, what's he selling? The answer is nothing. We're putting these podcasts out there and these interviews for nothing because our desire is similar to yours. We want to help people and we want to help people feel that they've got the tools to understand there's no secret to this stuff. It's not you're either born with it or you're not. There's there's a mindset that can be learned and adopted. So if there's any parents listening to it that's, that's thinking, how do I get access to get my kids to listen to Billy Munger's story or that Robin Persie one? 
the resource is there for free. You're happy to. We'll certainly provide links to it. Absolutely. Please do. Because as you say, it's, it is that kind of support. And you can't help but wonder whether Billy, with his family or in his upbringing, had a similar conversation at some point to the one that Robin Van Persie had. Because although, as you say, optimism isn't innate, you know, just you're not an optimistic person or not, it's likely to come from the kinds of environment you were brought up in, isn't it? That if your family have shown you grit and determination and that you're the master of your own destiny or mistress of your own destiny, that actually that's the kind of thing that's going to shape your outcome and outlook later on. So in Billy's situation, it's that kind of thing where knowing that there was support perhaps or whatever it was and obviously I don't know Billy's story, but I can't help but think that there's something like that that we as parents um, you know, in a minor coaching capacity, can help our own children look at in their own way. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I'm a parent of an 11-year-old son at the moment and an eight-year-old daughter, so I don't claim any expertise on this that I feel I'm muddling through often. But when I get a chance to reflect on my role, I sometimes pull myself up short. So I think that the example that we set, whether it's through our own example, so I remember somebody telling me, when I had my son that he said, if you want your son to love reading, let him see you read. Now, unfortunately, I do love reading. So it's something that, that they will frequently see me do. But I'll give you an example that applied earlier this year, that part of the nature of my work is that I felt I had to be on social media, whether it's for research or promoting some of the work that I'm involved in. We agreed to give my son a phone when he went to high school. So he, his birthday is in August. And leading up to it, I started to ask him, like, why do you want a phone and things like that? Because it's not something I was entirely comfortable with. And one of his reasons was that he wanted to be able to speak to his friends. It's like, I get that. But then the other thing was he wanted to be on social media. And I said, well, so what do you want to be on social media for? He said, oh, it's the way I can connect with people. And I thought, well, I'm on social media, so it makes me a hypocrite if I say to him, I don't want you to be on it. So it was a big reason for me just to remove myself from it because I thought that, I can't role model a certain behaviour that I want him to adopt and then do something different. And he wouldn't appreciate my generation if I need to be on it for work. It's like, well, actually, you really don't. And we had a really interesting example of it that, again, on the podcast, we did an interview with Dina Asher-Smith, the British sprinter. I was telling my son about this when he was... Because I said, well, what apps would you want to be on when the conversation was going ahead? And he said, oh, I'm going to go on Instagram. And I said, you're not going on Instagram. So, you know, you're not. And he was like, well, I know people that are. So I said to him, I said, let's do an exercise and then we'll discuss it. He said, what? So I said, I want you to go and research Dean Asher-Smith for me. And then I want to ask you some questions about her. So he went away, looked her up. I said, what do you know about her? He said, uh, she's a sprinter. I said, is she good? He went, yeah, she's the best in the world. She won the gold at the 200 meters world championships. Right, good. So we can establish then she's excellent at her job. Yeah. I said, did you think she was attractive? Yeah, she's very pretty. Lady, right, good. Is she in good physical shape? Well, yeah, of course she is, because she's the world's best sprinter. You think she's making a good living? He went, yeah, she's got endorsement deals and things like that. So I said, right, good. So we've established then that this is somebody that's excellent at their job. They're physically gifted. They're blessed with good looks. They're popular and well-regarded. Right, good. So listen to this clip of Dina Asher-Smith from the interview we've done. On the interview, she said, I don't read social media. She said, I'm on it for sponsorship purposes, but I use it to distribute stuff, but I'd never receive stuff from it. I don't read anything. And when we asked her why, she said, because I feel terrible about myself when I come off it. She said, I look at what my rivals are doing and I suddenly start doubting my game plan. I look at what other people are doing in training and I start feeling that I look ugly or 
I look out of shape compared to them. And she said, and it dawned on me that I start to feel unsuccessful and I feel horrible about myself after I've been on it. So I chose to remove it from my life. So I was able to use that with my son and say, what do you think that social media platform would do then for you at 11 years old? If this is a somebody that you've identified has got all those gifts and all those positive characteristics that you've just identified, and she's saying to you, I feel terrible about myself when I'm on it. What do you think it'll do to you at 11 years old to go and look at the platforms? So that was a really useful way of him agreeing not to go on Instagram and not to have social media. Certainly, it's not a battle that I think has gone away. I think it's one that we're going to have to think about. But the reason I mention it is that I don't claim any expertise here in being a parent, for anyone listening. But I think it's important that we role model the behaviours we want our kids to do. And that's where... You're right, I'm sure Billy Munger's parents were nurturing and encouraging and supportive and almost played a coaching role for him that have given him the characteristics that enabled him to deal with some of the trauma he's faced. And that was evident in terms of, to go back to the Robin Van Percy one, the kind of messages he was giving him can only serve his own son well in his life to come. Yeah, absolutely. And something we've heard before, a snappy little phrase, I think it was Dr Andy Cope said, they won't do as you say, but they will do as you do. And so the importance of, as you say, modelling good behaviours, sort of encouraging it through what it is that you do is, is so important with our kids. I talk about this when I work with coaches in teams that are leaders in businesses. People don't follow a hypocrite. We're not wired to follow somebody that tells us what to do and then we see behaviour in the opposite way. It just erodes trust and creates ambiguity and ambiguity creates uncertainty. That means that following a hypocrite is a you're on a doomed path. So... I mean, this is one of the things that I often see in terms of, like I say, that lesson I learned of if you want your children to love reading, read. Let them see you reading for pleasure rather than reading because you have to. If you if you want your children to keep physically active, let them see that you enjoy the process of it. I just think that role modelling accounts for such a huge part of what we learn as kids. So how can we apply that practically? So, So we've had a conversation with our children. We've talked to them about setting goals and about taking responsibility and being accountable for their progress in the context of everything that's happened around us yes it's awful but it's not your fault what you do about it is is going to be key so in the case as some will have done of either not being sort of motivated to study or just not getting into that habit how do we go about helping our children to sort of change those behaviors into something that's altogether much more productive when we sort of think about answering a question like that I think it can be quite intimidating to think about changing something too big so let's drill it down to the smallest step that we can make for this so don't ask children to suddenly become disciplined when you feel that discipline is beyond them think of drilling it down to the smallest tangible thing and you know make it for the next five minutes So if you want your children to tidy a room, for example, just ask them to tidy it for a minute. Just say, let's see how much we can do in a minute because most people can get their head around that. So just spend one minute tidying your room and then we'll see where it is. And then you hope that once you start the action, it leads to another action that leads to another consequence. So sometimes it's worth just drilling it down for as short a time as possible that kids can get their head around it and this idea that, Once you're capable of doing it, what that leads to is confidence. So all confidence is built from evidence. So when we say to to a child, be disciplined, what does that mean? Discipline is an abstract word. I'm not quite sure whether I have discipline or not. Whereas if you say, 
tidy your room for the next minute and then we'll do a review of what's the, can we do another minute after that? Or can we do that corner and see what we can achieve in a minute? You're giving them evidence and then you link it and you say, that minute that you've just spent was a minute of discipline. I've just tidied the room, showed discipline that you know how to do this. And then you basically start to catch them in rather than catch them out. Drill it down small and then make the effort to acknowledge it and link it back to the behavior that you're asking them to demonstrate. And the more evidence you can build up, the more that their confidence in their own their own intrinsic capabilities starts to grow from that. That's two possible ideas that might be helpful in starting to change children's habits. Certainly we've seen that in the specifics of revising and studying, that actually when you're faced with something huge like revising for geography, that it can be overwhelming and you think, actually, I don't even know where to start, I can't be bothered, or it's too much effort as you say, was looking at it, what we did, break them down into smaller topics, which I guess is then the same idea for, well, let's just, let's just focus on this corner of the room. If everything, if everything looks intimidating, let's focus on this one area. And also what we found is that that drives this feeling of success. So actually I, I did do that. I didn't think I was going to be able to, but I did sit down and, and spend that time doing it, or I feel better about myself. And that's sort of a driving force in itself, isn't it? That feeling of achievement. You're absolutely right, Nathan, but that goes back to that idea that you're starting to accumulate evidence of your own capabilities. You're not trying to build something in a vacuum of possibility. You're trying to build on the foundations of probability, and you've got the evidence that then creates solid foundations. So rather than say, wouldn't it be nice if, you're saying, wasn't it great when? So from a parenting point of view, that there's an obligation there to almost pause at each of those moments and acknowledge it. So my background is in organisational psychology, and I often say, if you want people to do something in organisations, catch them in far more frequently than you catch them out. So when they do it, acknowledge it. You don't have to make a big fuss, but just a quiet acknowledgement, thanks for doing that. I saw what you did there. That was really good. And if you link it to that kind of thing, then we almost start looking for the evidence of it. As parents, we pause for a moment just to acknowledge the evidence that children might not see or recognise it. I think that starts to create a momentum and we put ourselves in a momentum cycle that you're capable of doing this next time. You know you can do it and maybe we can do a bit more and you start to let momentum take over. And presumably it's important to find things that are actually valid and authentic because certainly my teens would call me out on anything that was patronizing or condescending oh well done that you've done something trivial i think would be i mean i just think we'd lose all kinds of authenticity and, and the, sort of maybe that trust would be eroded which is something you talked about before yeah and that's where i mean it, it, on a wider scale don't do gimmicks don't do gimmicks don't do things just because you've read that other people do it because there's no authenticity there so I'll give you an example. When I work in sport, a few years ago, there was a book out about the New Zealand rugby union team. One of their behaviours is they would sweep a dressing room. They call it sweeping the sheds, but they tidied the dressing room up after they'd been in and leave it. And I would go into other teams and they'd say, oh, we sweep the dressing rooms as well. And I'd say, why? And they go, well, we read this book about New Zealand. I go, that's not a reason for doing it. Copying somebody isn't a reason. If you can link it back and say to me, I know why New Zealand do it, because it's about showing the power of humility and respect. Now, if you were to tell me you sweep the dressing rooms because of humility and respect, go for it, because that's authentic. But if you're doing it just because you read somebody else does, that's a gimmick, and people see through gimmicks. And the reality is you'll probably drop it when a new idea comes along. 
So you're right. Don't sort of patronise them and go, oh, that's amazing that you managed to get up this morning because that's a ridiculous thing. But if you were to say, I like the fact that you got up five minutes earlier this morning and you made your bed, you know, that shows a discipline and you tie it into the behaviour you want to encourage. That's a more pertinent coaching point that you're acknowledging something very specific and you're linking it back to the behaviour or the characteristic that you're trying to encourage them to have confidence in developing. You can tell that your children are younger because there will come a point when they're late teen when actually getting out of bed will be a point of success. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm starting to see evidence of that myself with my eldest son. But I think that's an important point to make for any of your listeners in there that I'm not claiming any expertise in parenting here that, I, you know, as I say, I'm muddling through it my own way myself but I'm trying to relate some of the stuff I've learned from different contexts but I think that's the important thing isn't it I mean no one don't think could actually claim to be an expert in parenting we we all find our own way through and I think it's just absorbing more information from other people what I love about talking to you in particular is that actually your experience does come from other people and finding out what drives elite athletes or even business people is so interesting in thinking how can we help encourage that mindset with our own children, which brings me nicely on to the last thing. And and I was, I wonder if you could explain to me the, this concept of a winning mindset. Yeah, sure. So a number of years ago, I was asked by a publisher if I would like to write a book based on the practices of elite sports coaches. And it wasn't a book about sport. It was about how do these coaches bring a diverse collection of people together to behave as a cohesive team? Or how do you teach people the skills of coping under pressure? Or how do you deliver a message that months later people still recall? So all the things that as parents and if there's teachers listening to this would go, oh, I recognise that as a challenge. And what I found was that there was five characteristics that each of these coaches did and they were almost relentless in their application of it. So to try and make it easy for people, I gave it an acronym called STEPS because I wanted it to almost be like a mental inventory. It's like a shopping list for anybody that's thinking, if I can remember the steps and then ask myself, have I done as many of them as I'm capable of? There's plenty of evidence that says you develop this winning mindset that comes from it. So the steps are in turn, the first one is simplicity. So in a world of noise, it's the ability to cut through that noise and deliver our messages in the simplest way we're capable of. So I'll give you some stats. We know that in an average 60 minutes of our working day, we're interrupted 37 times during the hour by social media, smartphones, phone calls, emails, text messages, 37 interruptions in a 60 minute working hour. Now, what we know is if we allow ourselves to be distracted just one of those 37 times, it depletes your levels of concentration for the next 22 minutes. So you get an idea of how in a world of noise, it's hard to think, you know, smartphones make us stupid in many ways. So what I found with these coaches is they acknowledge the environment they were operating in and therefore they crafted their message so it could cut through the noise and say, this is what we need to do. There's a nice acronym I picked up. They use it in Hollywood. They call it a bluff. So if you're going to pitch for a film idea, the bluff is you put the bottom line up front. So before you tell anyone what the film's about, just tell them what the bluff is. This is die hard on a plane. Oh, you know what I mean? It's like you just simplify the film in a simple idea. And everyone goes, all right, I get it. And the idea behind simplicity is it's not assuming people are stupid. It's the opposite. It's assuming people are smart. And what you're doing is it's the ultimate sophistication as 
Leonardo da Vinci's head. You're giving them information that they can receive and do something with. So there's a nice example of it. I interviewed Alex Ferguson when I was doing this research and I asked him, I said, what do you think makes a great coach? He said, I'll show you. And he threw me a tennis ball. He said, catch it. So I did it. He said, give it back. And when I gave it back, he said, how did you find that? I said, it was easy. Why? So he took two balls and threw them in the air at the same time. He said, catch them both. So I managed to do it. He said, how did you find that? I said, it was a bit harder, but generally it was fine. So he took three balls, then he threw four, and then he threw five in the air all at the same time. He said, catch them all. And on that last occasion, I did well to get one. Ferguson said, there's a difference for you. He said, what good coaches do is they throw five balls in the air and hope that one of them sticks. What great coaches do is they work out, not how many balls can I throw, but how many can you catch? And then they prioritize that message and give you the information in the easiest way possible. So simplicity is key. The T part of it is about getting people to think. And the easiest way of measuring whether you'll make it, whether there's any thinking taking place in your world is, have a look at how many people are asking questions. Because when somebody asks a question, there's two things going on underneath the psychological surface of that simple question. One, they're demonstrating trust, that they're going to trust that if I ask you a question, you're not going to make me feel silly, that I want to trust that you're going to answer it in a discreet, sensitive manner. Well, the second thing is we're demonstrating the chance to build psychological safety. I'm going to admit a lack of knowledge or ignorance on a topic, and I need to feel safe enough that you're not going to make me feel ridiculous or set me up for a fall or criticise me for that lack of knowledge. So creating an environment where people feel safe and trust enough to ask a question and think for themselves is key. The third one is around emotional intelligence and this is a term that often gets banded around an awful lot without anyone explaining it. I'll give you a story from the most emotionally intelligent environment I went into. I went to visit a boxing gym in Detroit a number of years ago now. I don't know if you've been to Detroit recently, Nathan, but it's a city that's been beset by a lot of economic difficulties. It's built on the car industry. And I was going to the poorest part of America's poorest city. So you don't need me to over-exaggerate in terms of the gangs, the crime, the guns, the sort of social deprivation that's evident in some of these big American cities. So I was going into this and I stood out for two reasons. One, being a white guy in predominantly black neighborhoods and being an English guy in American neighborhoods made me an object of curiosity. But it also left me feeling quite uneasy that I was aware that there was people there that I needed to watch my step around because the consequences were quite serious. And when I went in, I met this guy called Emmanuel Stewart, who was regarded as one of the godfathers of uh, American boxing. So I get there and I meet him and he goes, David, he said, how do you feel arriving here in my gym? So I said, oh, it's great to be here. I'm really excited. Thanks for having me, Manny. I can't wait to spend the next few days with you. He said, that's kind. He said, how do you really feel? And I don't know if you've ever had verbal diarrhea, but I found myself stood in front of this man, just babbling away, telling him how nervous I was. I was tired, jet lagged, I didn't want to be under his feet. I didn't want to waste his time. And he let me finish that. And then he said, thanks for being honest. He said, that now means me and you can work together. He said, I want to take care of you. Now, when I got to know this man a bit better, I said to him, you know the first morning we met? He said, yeah. He said, why did you feel the need to ask me that second question? He said, I always ask the second question. He said, the second question was when we began working together. I said, that's an intriguing response. What do you mean by that? He said, well, he said, when I said, how do you feel? How do you feel arriving in my world? He said, the answer you gave me didn't match the pictures I could see. He said, I saw this nervous looking white English guy telling me how excited he was to be here. He said, so the conclusion I reached was one of two options. You were either a liar or you were a sociopath. He said, I need to know who I'm working with. So my second question, how do you really feel? Accelerated that conversation. And it got us to a place where I realized you were telling lies. 
but you were telling lies because you were nervous, but you were doing your best to be playing. And he said, every child that comes up the stairs into this same gym feels the same way you do. They're nervous, frightened, scared, intimidated. They feel out of the depth. He said, no, I think I'm the best coach in the world, but I know I can't coach you when those emotions are clouding your judgment. He said, so I work on a three-word basis when it comes to emotional intelligence. Contain, then explain. Contain, then explain. I need to convince you that I care about you, that I'm on your side, that I know your story, that I recognise what skills you've got, that you're going to be safe in my company. And when all those factors are taken care of, I've contained you, then I can start to explain how we're going to work together more effectively. But what you can't do is explain and then contain. I can't tell you what to do and then convince you I care about you. I've got to prove to you that I care about you before I ask you to do something. That's emotional intelligence in a nutshell. The fourth one of our acronym is practicality. Strip your language of jargon. So one of my academic heroes is Howard Gardner, the educational psychologist that says, the question all kids should be able to answer when they leave school is not how clever are you, but they should be able to answer, how are you clever? Because we're all intelligent in different ways. Some of us are verbally gifted, some are socially gifted, some are physically gifted. We're all intelligent, but we need to we need to be able to understand what our intelligence is. And what none of us is intelligent in is abstract language. So when we talk about synergies or what's our strategy, nobody understands what that word means. It's an abstraction. So if we talk about what's our path, what's our route, what's our goal, and if we understand what our intelligence is, we can almost then start to pander to that. So what I found is that even these expert coaches would speak as if they were talking to a novice and it wasn't patronising, but what they were saying was we make sure that everybody understands the language that we're talking. And then the final part of the acronym, the final S, is storytelling. What I discovered was that all these great coaches I was meeting were great anecdotalists or were constantly telling stories. And at first you sit in the company and think, oh, this is engaging, this is nice. And it's only when you walk away, you go, what a brilliant coaching session that was. And I don't feel they've, they've not formally coached you, they've just told you a story that sticks in your mind that you go, that's how it applies to me. I've tried fairly crudely that example of the story in Detroit. I'd hope that people would go, ah, oh, right, I remember that. And I can, I can empathise with those feelings of feeling out of your depth or out of place. But the a stranger treating you with kindness is something that most of us have experienced at some stage in our life. And then when you go, so what was it about? Contained and explained. Right, they're three words that are simple and it cuts through any sort of jargon of emotional intelligence. No, no, let's talk about something that's now practical and it's allowed us to think. So hopefully sharing that anecdote, people can go, oh, that was a decent coaching point we're trying to make there. That's the benefit of the final point, which is about storytelling giving somebody an example. And that's why, again, I mentioned that podcast before. If people are going, what stories can I tell? Listen to that. So get the story of Billy Munger, explain the context and then play it to him. So that's a coaching point. You don't need to be the storyteller yourself, but you need to be able to point people in the direction of where the story is being told, that they can use it themselves. They're fantastic. Although I know that coaching is, it's a profession, it's a skill it comes with qualifications and and all of those good things actually as a parent 
who was going through GCSEs with my son, I think one of the watershed moments for me came in thinking, I've got to stop parenting so much and doing the kind of things that I thought I should do to keep him safe and protected and actually help guide him more to be more of a coach. And I think these five steps are the kinds of things surely that any parent can take on and think, I can do this. I can rethink the way I'm approaching it in order to help my son or daughter. Massively, yeah, yeah. So the idea about the book that I did was that, that I say it all trades in common sense, but it's not necessarily common practice. So it just reminds people to say, you actually don't need a qualification to apply the steps. You just need to have a bit of basic common sense that I've gone and seen these examples of trying to offer this is why it works. Here's the psychology of why it works. Here's a story about who applies it. But then here's how you can do it now. Because like nobody's arguing for complexity. Nobody's sat here listening to this thinking, I don't think simplicity is relevant. I think the world needs to be more complex and ambiguous. Nobody's suggesting that. So we go, simplicity is obvious. How do I do it? Well, let's think of the bluff. What's the bottom line up front? If I was pitching an idea for a film, how would I cut to the core of it? Right, how do I do that in terms of what's your objective? What's the single most important thing we've got to achieve today? Right, here's what it is. Let's move on from it. Like, we did an interview recently. I'll give you another quick anecdote about emotional intelligence. But on the podcast recently, we interviewed Kelly Jones, the lead singer of the Stereophonics Band. And Kelly's going through a situation where his eldest daughter is transitioning to be a boy. And... He brought it up in the conversation and he spoke about the journey that him and his family are on in terms of navigating this experience for his son. And one of the questions we asked him was, what lessons have you learned about this as a parent that other parents would listen to? And do you know what his response was, Nathan? He said, don't underestimate the value of just giving them a cuddle. There's emotional intelligence for you in one line. This is a guy that you see him as like a, a rock superstar, you know, you'd think, what problems does he have in his life? Is it about where the next Magnum of Champagne's coming from? And then you go, the reality is he's dealing with the same challenges that we're dealing with. His maybe taken a slightly different form than what yours or mine might be. But that message of don't underestimate the value of a, of a cuddle, of giving your kids a hug, that's universal. And I think it's a common sense reminder and the challenge is, how do we make that as part of the common practice? Damien, wow. Thanks so much for your time and your insights. What a tremendous mix of stories and practical takeaway, and everything so absolutely relatable too. We've all been in situations where we might struggle to find the drive to get on with something, and that's often because we haven't sold ourselves on that end goal. All too often, we can see this in our teens and their revision, that motivational lever that we're calling on is probably based on desperation. I don't want you to fail, and you don't want to fail, do you? It's hardly the stuff of a rallying cry. It makes sense that you'd be more energised to gain something rather than to avoid something. And defining an outcome goal whatever that might be for your own young person, can really help focus their attention. Now, there shouldn't be a right or a wrong answer to this, so long as they can really picture themselves doing it. Now, of course, that's not enough on its own, and I certainly saw this with Jake's ambition to be a doctor, and this is where Damon's second and third goal types really come in. 
What are the smaller performance goals that will help get your child to their desired outcome? Now, for most of our children, good grades is likely to be one of those mile markers. But whatever it is, you want something that's a bit of a stretch that can spur them on to the right behaviours. Which brings us, crucially then, to those process goals. How are they going to get there? As someone famously once said, a goal without a plan is just a wish. Our children need to be able to identify the actions that they must take. From experience, these should be simple, dead clear, and gear them up for success. Because once they've had a taste of success, they're going to want to carry on. For me, one of the key points that Damien talked about was responsibility. And especially important for this year's exam cohort, moving on from fault and despondency. Now, this has been a tough year for GCSE and A-level students. There's no doubt about it. They've been dealt a bad hand. But there's nothing they can do about that. What they choose to do next will make the world of difference, both to them reaching their goals and also how they think about themselves. If they were sat in that car, would Van Persie tell them that they were thinking like a loser or thinking like a winner? Encouraging the right approach, as Damon told us, starts with us. We heard that we need to model those desired behaviours or outlook, whether it's optimism or grit, so that our children can follow our lead. You'll remember Danny Quinn talking recently about this shared identity in a family and our children will naturally want to belong to it. We McGirls are always prepared to try again. The Eureka moment, I think, comes in the form of looking at everything from a different perspective. Parents as coaches. And here Damon really set out the, the five steps for helping get the most out of other people. Simplicity. Think. Emotional intelligence. Practicality. Storytelling. I'm certainly going to work on this and the way that I approach my conversations with Emily. I don't think it's going to come by accident, so taking a bit of time to see how I can apply this and how you can apply this in your own household, I think is really going to pay dividends. Taken together, Damien has presented us with a set of approaches that work to change the mindset of sports teams, of athletes and business professionals. But there's no reason at all why it can't easily be applied to help drive our own teams towards their successes. And... With the level of uncertainty that they're facing at the moment, having a toolkit that will help you and your young person make sense of what they can do to fulfil their potential is an absolute gift. Thank you for listening. I hope, like me, you took a lot away from this episode. If you have, and if it's given you pause to think of it differently, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review and, if you don't mind, five stars? It really helps us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with friends on social media is always very much appreciated too. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.